I invite you for our sermon this evening to turn to the gospel according to John. We will be looking at verses 1 through 17 of the 13th chapter of John's gospel. The gospel according to John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of the living God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you... Wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Thus ends the reading of the word of God. May he add his blessing to it. It is Thursday, April 2nd, A.D. 33. After entering into Jerusalem on a donkey to much fanfare and shouts of Hosanna this past Sunday, Jesus spent Monday cleansing the temple. And then the next two days he spent teaching in the temple that he had just cleansed. He has cursed a fig tree, teaching how Israel has been unfruitful. He teaches about the destruction of Jerusalem and the signs that will surround his second coming. In response to all of this, on Wednesday, the chief priests begin to plot how to arrest and kill Jesus 
and they find a willing participant in Jesus' own inner circle in the person of Judas Iscariot, who promises to betray Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver. Now, on Thursday, Jesus and his disciples enter into the upper room where they will celebrate Passover, and Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper. He will tell Judas to go do what he has to do quickly, and he gives his disciples one final time of teaching before going to a garden to pray. But before entering into his time of teaching, Jesus acts out a parable which involves him doing something very shocking. And that forms the content of our passage this evening. In verses 1 through 3, I want us to see Jesus' origin and mission. Jesus' origin and mission. John tells us that Jesus knew his hour had come. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. The word hour in John's gospel is a technical term to refer to the appointed time for Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of his people. John uses this word throughout his gospel to refer to this set time. It was, it was a set time fixed in place by God from eternity past. That's why it's called the hour or his hour. William Hendrickson says, quote, It was the hour in which the Son of Man would terminate his labors by rendering the one and only atoning sacrifice for the sin of mankind. The hour of fulfilling prophecies, types, and symbols. The hour of triumph over the prince of the world. The hour of dismissing the old and of ushering in the new. End quote. This hour also clues us in to Jesus' origin. It's the hour, verse 1 says, for Jesus to depart from this world and to go back to the Father, to return to the Father. This means that Jesus had originally come from the Father. If he's going back to him, that means originally he had to come from him. Look down at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. He was with God, and He is God, as John put it at the very beginning of His Gospel in verse 1 of chapter 1. Jesus is the preexistent Son of God. Before the world was ever created, Jesus had both being and power and glory as God, the second person of the Trinity. And now Jesus is, so to speak, going back home. The events that will take place over the next three days will all usher Jesus back to the Father, back to God from where he came. And all of this is set in motion by verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Jesus, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. It is the betrayal that will lead to the cross, that will lead to the grave, that will lead to the resurrection. And ultimately back to the Father in the ascension. Jesus came from heaven and he came with a mission. And now he is going back to heaven having accomplished that mission through all of these events. What is that mission? 
Look at verse 1 again. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved his own in the world, and he loved them to the very end. That is why Jesus came. Jesus loved his apostles given to him by the Father with respect to time from the beginning, uh, from, the, from the moment he created them to the end. He loved them. So with respect to time, he loved them to the end. But also with respect to quality, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the greatest and the highest degree. He loved them to the uttermost. He is not like Oscar Schindler. If you were with us in Sunday school a few weeks ago, you saw uh, that clip from Schindler's List at the very end. Who He could have sold his pen to save one more Jewish life or, or sold his car to save ten more Jews. I could have done more. But Jesus is not like that. No, he has loved them to the uttermost. There's no place where Jesus could say, I could have loved them more. He loved them to the utmost degree. That was his mission because as John puts it in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And 1 John 4.8 says that God is love. Jesus called the apostles to come to him and follow him and learn from him. He called them to have fellowship with him. He was gracious and merciful when they were brash and foolish. He was gentle with them when they were afraid. He explained things to them when they did not understand. Matthew Henry says that the disciples, quote, were weak and defective in knowledge and grace. They were dull and forgetful. And yet, though Jesus reproved them often, he never ceased to love them and take care of them, end quote. Now, this reality is true not just for the apostles, however, but for all who belong to Christ. Every single person that the Father has given to the Son, Jesus has loved to the uttermost. That's you and me. He's loved us to the uttermost. He purchased us for himself. He paid for us with his own life. And he set us apart for his purposes. He loves you and me to the end. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, a love that never ceases, a love that is complete and perfect, a love that does not fail. Nothing will ever separate you and me from the love of Christ, who is with God and is God and is in the heavens, having accomplished his mission on your behalf and my behalf, and he loves you perfectly and completely because he is God Having loved his own, that includes you and me. We belong to Christ. Having loved us who were in the world, he loved us to the end, to the utmost degree. From the very moment we were created, from eternity past to eternity future. John moves us from giving insight into the mind of Jesus here in these first three verses to now Jesus demonstrating that love in action. And in verses 4 and 5, I want us to see Jesus' humiliation. 
Jesus' humiliation. Jesus wraps a, a towel around himself after laying aside his outer garments, and he stoops down and begins to wash and dry the feet of his disciples. This is completely inappropriate for a teacher or a master to do in this culture at this day and age, let alone the Son of God himself. Whether it was Jewish society or Greek society or Roman society, you never saw a superior wash the feet of his inferiors. And in the Jewish culture of this day, not even a Jewish servant was required to wash the feet of his master. This was such a menial task that it was reserved for non-Jewish servants. That's how low and despicable this act was. It was, it was a humiliating act. I mean, you, you couldn't get lower than a snake's belly. And yet Jesus, who has all things given into his hands, verse 3 says, Jesus rises from the table in order to serve his disciples in an act of humility. John the Baptist had earlier said that he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And yet here is Jesus washing the feet of his own disciples, doing something that was, that was one of the lowest and most demeaning acts that you could do in this day and age. As Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, Jesus did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped, but voluntarily took on the form of a servant. And here we see him performing a servant's task voluntarily. And notice that he does this during the meal. He willingly and voluntarily interrupted his meal. He didn't even wait to finish his food to humble himself and to serve his disciples by washing their feet. Jesus' true food was to do the will of the Father, and that was to come to serve others rather than to serve himself. What does this acting, living parable, what does this illustration or parabolic act show us about Jesus' service for others? Verses 6 through 11, we see Jesus' salvation. Jesus' salvation. We don't know if Jesus goes to Peter first or if he goes to Peter last, but Peter speaks for all the disciples as he typically did, and he is shocked by what Jesus is doing. It's, it's not there uh, in, in the English translation, but but. If you heard when I was reading this verse 6, did you hear when I put the emphasis on you and me? There's emphasis in the original Greek. Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter's shocked. This isn't what the Messiah has come to do. Remember the... The disciples, much like the crowds on Palm Sunday, are still under the impression of a, a nationalistic Messiah who's going to overthrow the Roman 
Empire, what in the world are you doing, Jesus? Get up! Again, Peter is sticking his foot in his mouth by implying that what Jesus is doing is not right, not appropriate, not suitable, and not seemly. What Jesus is doing does not make sense to them, and Jesus says as much. Verse 7, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Jesus promises that at a later point in time, they will understand what he is doing, though they do not presently understand it. And so Peter takes the foot that's already in his mouth and he shoves it further into his mouth in verse 8. Lord, you will never wash my feet forever. It doesn't come out in the translation, but, but literally he says, you will not wash my feet into the age or for into eternity. You will never, ever, ever wash my feet, Lord. Even if and when you bring about the age to come, you shall not wash my feet. One New Testament commentator points the irony out in this. He says, quote, Peter was too humble to have his feet washed, but not too humble to command the Lord. Too humble to have his feet washed, but not too humble to command the Lord, end quote. To which Jesus responds, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Share our portion in me. This is union with Christ language that points symbolically to Christ's blood washing away our sins, which is physically depicted in the sacrament of baptism. This same word for, for share or portion is used of unbelievers in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, which was also written by John. And there we are told that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, that their share or portion is in the lake of fire. And so Christ is saying, if I do not wash you, and he's not talking literally about the feet, he's using that to point symbolically to the washing of his blood to cover our sins. If I do not wash you, if I do not wash you clean of your sins, you don't have any share or portion with me. You will not receive what belongs to me. I, I, I will not give it to you. you do not come to Christ by faith, there is no forgiveness of sins, and you do not have a share in Christ. You're not a part of Christ. You, you have no share in him, and you have no share in his body, the church. So if you have not trusted upon Christ alone at this moment, I urge you to do so now. When Peter realizes what Jesus is talking about, look at his response in verse 9. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Cover me, Lord Jesus. Don't just cleanse my feet. Cleanse me head to toe. Cleanse me completely. Wash me in your blood for the forgiveness of my sins. Notice how quickly Peter changed his mind once he says and understands that if he doesn't let Jesus do this to him, that he doesn't have this portion or share in Jesus. 
Will you change your mind about Christ? He's not just a good person or a good teacher, even just a good prophet sent from God. He is very God of very God. And he, he died on the cross so that sinners like you and me could be saved from the lake of fire and have a share and a portion in the good and sweet and happy things of Jesus Christ. And if Christ has washed you with his blood, verse 10, then you are completely clean. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it is completely clean. And you are clean. If Jesus has washed you with his blood, you are completely clean. Just like there was not a speck of dirt left on the feet of Peter, so there is not a speck of sin on your heart that has not been covered over in the cleansing blood of the Lamb. R.C. Sproul says, quote, One touch of the cleansing power of Christ cleanses us from all sin. End quote. All of the sins of the people of God are cleansed and washed at the cross of Christ, which is a once-for-all time, never-to-be-repeated-again event. We'll look more at that on Easter Sunday. Yet, though we have been completely washed in the blood of Christ, we stand in need of daily washing. We've been cleansed, but we stand in need of daily washing. The one who has bathed does not need to wash. That is the language of salvation, of conversion. When you first are moved from being a sinner to a saint, Converted from the, the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, from darkness to light. You don't need to bathe, but you do need to wash your feet. You see, we are called to live lives of daily repentance and receive daily forgiveness from Christ. Christ continues to wash you and I, not head to toe, because that happened at the moment where we believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That happened at the cross when Christ died for our sins. But Christ washes our feet from the daily dirt of sin that still clings to us as we walk in this fallen world. Sin still, still clings to us and still stains us on a daily basis because daily we fall short of the glory of God. So we don't need justification again. That is, that is an act one time. You cannot lose your justification. But we do need daily forgiveness and repentance in the process of sanctification as we progress and mature in the faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean but not every one of you. It's possible to have an external interest in Christ, but not really from the heart. Look at verse 11. He knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. It seems that Jesus also washed the feet of Judas, but Judas was not clean. We read earlier in verse 2 that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. What a sad story that is. To have walked with Jesus for three years, to have witnessed all of the healings, the exorcisms, and, 
and even the resurrections, to have gained the trust of the other apostles, to have so gained their trust that to, you were put into the position of being the treasurer of the apostles and in, in charge of the money bags, and yet to not have had a heart affected by the Savior. What a sad story that is. As D.A. Carson puts it, Judas was washed, but he was not cleansed. He had his feet washed, but he had not been bathed by the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And there are many people walking around today who think they have a share in Christ when all they have is an external affiliation and interest and association, but they've not had that change of heart. What, what scripture variously calls the new birth or regeneration. They've not placed their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And these may be prominent people in the church, be it a treasurer or a deacon or an elder or perhaps even a pastor. They may have gone on many mission trips or given many years to the mission field, yet never had their heart changed. This is what the author of Hebrews means in Hebrews 6 when he talks about those who have been enlightened and tasted of the gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. And yet they fall away. This is what Jesus means when he says that not all who say to him, Lord, Lord, will enter into heaven. Look at all that we did doesn't matter if your heart has not been changed by faith. All you had was an external association with Christ, but you didn't have an internal share and portion in Christ himself. You weren't united to him by faith. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop of the 18th century, says that, or 19th century, excuse me, says that, quote, baptism and churchmanship are no proof that we are right in the sight of God, end quote. Is this you? Have you been like Judas for so many years among the people of God? Are you only externally connected to the body of Christ, but your heart has not been changed? Then come to Christ. Ask him to cleanse you head to toe. Wash me, cleanse me, bathe me. Like Peter did, ask for forgiveness, ask for mercy, believing in your heart that Jesus Christ will do as he promised and will not turn away any who come to him by faith. There is no sin so great that is not able to be forgiven by Jesus and washed in his blood. This is his mission. This is what it means to love his own to the very end. To seek and save that which was lost and to love those whom he saves to the very end. And to spend his entire earthly ministry perfectly glorifying God, perfectly keeping the law, and then dying as the substitutionary atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God. That was his mission. That was his humiliation. That is his salvation. And finally, in verses 12 through 17, we see Jesus' example. Jesus' example. Jesus explains the significance of what he has just done. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I am your teacher. I am your Lord. 
And since I, as your Lord and as your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, many churches take this literally, and many will tonight hold a foot-washing ceremony. Some will even consider foot-washing to be a sacramental action or a sacrament itself. But what, what Jesus is demonstrating here is the actions of a humble servant. He doesn't mean to the disciples, you're to go and wash other disciples' feet. He says, you're to go and serve them. Look at verse 15. For I have given you an example, a pattern, a living illustration that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus is here telling us that we are to consider ourselves to be humble servants of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If our master, and he is rightly called our master, was humble enough to serve us, we ought to be humble enough to serve one another. We are called to humble ourselves and serve one another. Matthew Henry puts it like this, quote, Thus Jesus would teach us to think nothing below us, nothing below us, wherein we may be serviceable to God's glory and the good of our brethren, end quote. There's nothing beneath, too beneath us. So Jesus calls us to understand what he has done. He says, truly, truly, verse 16, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If he did this, then we who are lower than him are also to do this. And if you know these things, verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. This word blessed harkens us back to the Sermon on the Mount. Mourning over our sin, being a peacemaker, being meek, being merciful, and so forth. All of these involve humility. It takes humility to mourn over our sins. It takes humility to be a peacemaker. It takes humility to be meek. It takes humility to be merciful to one another. And that humility expresses itself or demonstrates itself outwardly when we serve one another. And if we do not have this attitude or this heart toward each other, the implication of verse 16 is this. We consider ourselves to be higher and to be better than our Lord and Master then God himself, if we're not willing to humble ourselves to serve others. We consider ourselves to be higher than God himself. For Jesus says at the end of verse 13, I am. So I am. The very name of Yahweh, the God in the Old Testament, the personal name of God in the Old Testament. You know who else thought himself higher and better? than the Lord Jesus. Satan. Satan. Pride is the attitude and action of the devil. The way of the master is an attitude of humility expressing itself in the action of service to one another. Matthew Henry again says, quote, we must divest ourselves of everything that would either feed our pride or hang in our way and hinder us in what we have to do. 
Or as J.C. Ryle puts it, quote, If the only begotten Son of God, the King of kings, did not think it beneath him to do the humblest work of a servant, there is nothing which his disciples should think themselves too great or too good to do. End quote. And everything Jesus did, from leaving heaven to loving his own to the uttermost, to dying on the cross, Jesus demonstrated the unfathomable depths of his love as well as demonstrated himself to be a humble servant to others. And he gives us his spirit in salvation to enable us to love others as well and to humbly serve one another and to fight against pride and to pursue humility. So the question before us is how do we fight against pride? How do we pursue humility? First, we need to be asking for it. <laughs> that seems rather simplistic, doesn't it? But, but what does the book of James say? You have not, why? <laughs> because you ask not. We need to ask for it. Lord, grant me the grace that I need today to humble myself before others and think of their needs and think of ways that I can serve them. Lord, show me areas of my life where I am proud and forgive me for my pride and help me in the spirit to put to death the temptations to pride. And the Lord promises to grant those requests that are according to his will and it is his will that we grow in humility and decrease in pride. So ask for it. Ask for an increase of humility and a decrease of pride and forgiveness for pride. Second, spend time in God's word. Scripture constantly reminds us that as the people of God, we are just servants. We, we were merely doing our duty. Scripture also shows us how God demonstrates the depths of his love and the depths of Jesus' humility when he walked here on earth. And as we pray and as we spend time in God's word, seeking to grow in humility and decrease in pride, this is going to have ramifications across the entirety of your life. Your marriage. Where can I be more humble towards my spouse? Where have I been proud towards my spouse and need to ask for forgiveness? Your family. Where can I be humble towards my children? Where can I be humble towards my sibling? Where have I been proud towards my brother or sister? And I need to ask for their forgiveness as well as God's forgiveness. Where have I been proud towards my children? Where have I been proud towards my parents? Your work. How can I be humble in serving my boss and serving my employees who are under me, serving my coworkers if we're equals? How can I serve them? Where have I been proud towards any body in my work, whether they're over me or under me or the same level that I am? Your school, where can I be more humble towards my teachers and my, my classmates? Where can I be more humble towards my students? Where have I been proud? Show me where I've been proud at school and forgive me and, and give me a heart to, to be aware and to, to, to listen 
to hear what their needs are and to serve them and to demonstrate the servanthood that Christ demonstrated. Your church, where have I been proud towards others in the church? Where have I been proud towards my church as opposed to other churches? How can I grow in humility towards my fellow church members? How can I grow in humility towards my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ outside the members of this church? Be they Baptist or Methodist or non-denominational. The reality is the more the Spirit works through the means of grace and sanctifies our hearts in this area, the more that's going to affect all of our various relationships and the way we live our lives and the way we demonstrate that our lives have been changed by the grace of God and having our hearts cleansed, bathed, and washed by Jesus Christ. And when we fall, and we will fall, when our foot stumbles, and we will stumble, when our mouths speak haughty words, and they will, the good news is that there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus, who daily stoops down and washes our feet and forgives us anew because he is the God who washes us clean. Amen and amen.